and welcome to State of Ready. Here we will strive to inform you of new ideas and infuse technology into emergency management. We also will bring a wide and diverse perspective to issues, concerns, and problems that you can help solve. Join us now for State of Ready. Thanks for listening. Listeners, uh, we are back. We hope you like the new theme song to State of Ready. Um, it's brand new for us. It's been on one episode. You hear it again the second time. So please feel free to comment down below in the comment section if you like it. Um, we really appreciate everybody's feedback. Five ep- this is episode five, right, Bill? Yes, sir. Look at that. Consistency is success everyone uh, in life and in uh, emergency management so my name's Ed Southwest uh, Emergency Management coming to you from the top left corner of the map Portland Oregon and with me is Bill Fogarty from 21 Kletz, uh from the local Bay Area here in California uh, law enforcement officer also owner of 21 Kletz. Uh, been in the business now for uh, I'll say 20 years or more and with us and joining us especially on this episode is Ashley Morris and I'm so glad to be here I'm actually an emergency manager out here in Maryland I've been doing emergency management for about four years now uh, in the local government sector and traditionally I actually come out of a meteorology and weather science background where I went to Texas Tech University and studied there and so uh, I'm so excited to be here with you guys you being here um ashley is one of the more popular ones on (laughs) on twitter and uh influential in emergency management and so we are very happy uh to have her on board to talk to her about weather and emergency management um how critical weather is i mean if we talk about emergency management one of the very first i've had to deal with ever since We've been kind of dealing with emergencies has always been something weather related, you know, whether it is uh, fire, flood, tornadoes, hurricanes, uh, drought, dust, um, anything really that affects us uh, in the climate aspect and the weather aspect, you know, causes problems for us. There's uh, definitely weather related issues. There isn't a single place on the earth that cannot escape from what weather does and can create if we are not properly Uh, And so that's uh, what our subject and our topic is, so does weather and emergency management. And we just want to jump right in and pose this question, what challenges emergency managers? You know, every day emergency managers are are, um, doing preparedness, recovery, um, and no matter what, the common theme that happens is 24 hours every day, the weather is going. Whether it's the weather changing, whether it's the weather causing chaos, you know, how does our day-to-day routine uh, affect the way we as emergency managers and meteorologists do our job? You know, does weather really impact a person's life or is it a part of their life? Uh, what do you all think? Well, I think, you know, I want to turn this over to Ashley and get her perspective on Obviously, here in California, uh, every day that goes by, it seems like it's another uh, high wind warning. Uh, not to mention, we're already facing drought conditions here. It's probably the earliest I remember facing it. Uh, we're already on water rationing, and what that does for not just the natural environment, 
neighborhoods where people are not going to be watering their lawns, uh, watering their trees, et cetera, et cetera. So it's going to suck even more water out of the ground that normally gets in there. But Ashley, what do you think? Yeah, I think definitely it affects everybody in every aspect of our life. Uh, in meteorology, we kind of joke around about how people really just rely on us to figure out what the, what clothes they're going to wear or if they're going to take an umbrella to work, which is definitely true. But if you take a look at economics, if you take a look at pretty much every aspect of how our country runs, uh, meteorology and actually weather systems impact, impact that in some way. And so I think with emergency management, it's definitely a challenge in understanding the weather and also knowing how to communicate it and then also prepare for it like we work so hard to try to do. You know, that brings up a great um, a great subject right there. So when it comes to weather, where does, the, where does it all begin? Where does the start of uh, the, the prediction or the uh, management or the issuance of forecasts, uh, how does that play or where does that all start there, Ashley? Do you mean like the process? Yeah, for people who may like, where when we see a weather forecast, like how does that begin? Who's in charge of that in, in, in the United States? Yeah, so forecasting is all about uh, taking a look at some of our observations and our data and what's actually outside the window. So that's gonna be your temperature, your wind direction, atmospheric pressure, all of those variables that uh, kind of control the weather or actually work towards uh, weather formation. Um, to kind of take a look at all of that and put a forecast together, we have to use a lot of different tools. Um, meteorologists will actually take a look at a lot of weather data and a lot of the data is actually composed of different kind of formulas, uh, scientific equations, a lot of math. And so uh, our National Weather Service offices around the country will spend a lot of time taking a look at those observations, uh, plugging those into weather models, and then looking at a variety of different weather models and runs to actually see uh, what storms are going to come in and give you that uh, really nice forecast that they pump out all the time. Um, weather is constantly changing, uh, as well as the data, and um, that's another reason why a lot of our forecast offices actually run 24-7. Well, Ashley, I think you hit on something really important there, and that's the communication aspect and how you get information out to the community. Because, you know, it's sort of like if a tree falls in the forest, does it make any noise? Well, of course it makes noise. The question is, is anybody listening to it? So how do you get information out to the community to make sure that they're aware of what it is that's going on? I think we have to do a variety of different modes. Um, you know, some people rely on uh, the television, watching the news, meteorologists uh, like tradition. Other people rely on weather forecasts coming through the radio. Um, many people have weather apps now on their cell phones. Uh, in a whole bunch of different ways. We have so much technology nowadays to actually get with weather information very easily and also communicate weather information. I think our biggest challenge as professional meteorologists is making sure that we get the correct, accurate forecasts out to people uh, because uh, as many of us know, uh, everybody has access to weather models and weather data. And uh, unfortunately, we can actually get forecasts and information that is not credible or accurate from sources like the National Weather Service. So um, I guess using a variety of different methods and modes to get the information out to people, but really educating people about uh, where to get that valid information from the correct forecasters. 
Excellent. So when it comes to that, is it more than just telling the public? Is it more than just letting them know? How important is that call to action when when uh, severe weather or weather that somebody in the public has to make a uh, has to be actionable on? What, what's so critical about that call to action? Extremely critical. Uh, we've been doing a lot of research over the past 10 to 20 years because we've found that as meteorology gets better and better and as we do a better job putting out storm warnings and correct forecasts, we still see storm fatalities and we see issues with people actually taking the correct actions to protect themselves during storms. A really good example of a storm that we've studied, uh, you know, messaging and people taking action would be the Joplin tornado. Uh, people in Joplin had nearly an hour to actually take shelter and be ready but unfortunately we found that some of our communication wasn't properly there. Uh, also, we had some issues with false alarm warnings. So the people in Joplin kind of got used to hearing tornado warnings over and over that never actually occurred. And so when they got that warning, they did not take action. And so we have found in a lot of these this research and these studies that we need to provide some kind of call to action with the weather information that we're saying. It's no longer good enough to just say, hey, we're gonna have a tornado or hey, we're gonna have a blizzard. We need to actually tell the people three top things to do at that time. So for instance, if I put out a tornado warning on social media for OEM, I'm gonna say, hey, you know, <clears throat> head inside, um, seek an interior room with no windows and stay there until an all clear, right? So three, three stages of messaging there. I think that's so important. I mean, especially you talked about appropriate messaging too. It's, it's one thing that we see all the time that people say, oh, this is happening in this location. Um, and either it's a false alarm, it's it's not actually happening because someone is not aware of what they're seeing, but also they don't know the right steps to take in case they do something. And, you know, a perfect example is in the world of law enforcement, someone says, well, I've been robbed. Well, they haven't actually been robbed. It's someone went into their house and burglarized their house. And so it's two different types of communication. So I really like this idea about messaging and sort of giving the next steps. Um, and when you look at appropriate messaging, do you have templates to use or is it something where it's it depends on each case on a case by case basis? I kind of do a mix of both. So usually you kind of have your traditional templates or your calls to action that you're going to put out to the public of what they need to do to stay safe or to take action. But every single storm is different, just like every incident is different. Uh, depending on what's actually ongoing outside, uh, you might need to change up what you're concentrating on. A really big example is uh, how we've done severe weather messaging over the past year. We've had to add in the COVID stuff. So for instance, if we're gonna open up a shelter, we have to incorporate in our messaging to bring masks and things like that. And so we have to always kind of look at the overlying uh, variables that are associated with that and then try to plug in some of those calls to action with what's going on to try to give people the best information and the best ways to take action at that time to be safe. And so that brings up a really good point um, because sometimes there are events where time is of the essence, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, severe storms, winter storms, where we, we almost have a, a prediction, I guess, uh, of when and at what time um, these events are going to occur. Um, how critical is some something in the event of in the Midwest when there are severe storms? Um, how critical is time sensitive information to get out to the public um, 
for you? It is extremely critical. And I also want to say that uh, as emergency managers, we know how critical time is and getting information at the right time. And so that's something that when we've been working with our National Weather Service meteorologists and we've been kind of building that partnership, we've been kind of letting them know, hey, like when you give us a impact briefing or if you're going to give us information on the hurricane or the tornado outbreak, uh, please give it, give us a timing window because we set our operational pace with that timing window. We open up our EOC and our ops periods based on that as well. And so timing is extremely important to emergency managers. Um, it's also very important to the public because just like emergency managers need to have the time to set up our ops period, you know, get people ready, uh, coordinate with our first responders to get the, the right amount of resources and people in there, uh, people need to have the time to take action too. So if we can get uh, information in there uh, as fast as we can so that they can take action, um, that's going to be a benefit to them so they can have the time to prepare. And I think we see that with hurricanes all the time. You know, I am now used to seeing the images of there's a storm brewing that is blowing across the Atlantic. Um, this means at certain hours, this is what's going to happen at this hour. This is going to happen this hour. This is what's going to happen. So you give a chance to the public to decide what their actions are. But I, I mean, one of the questions I have is I have very little experience with tornadoes. And Ashley, I think this is something you have a, a great background on. So how much advance notice do you get and how fast can you get messaging out to the community and how fast do you see them reacting when they get the message? Yes, so typically we've done a lot of studies on this and the average lead time right now, I believe, is 8 to 12 minutes. So that means from the time that you receive the tornado warning from NWS, you will have about 8 to 10 minutes before it hits you. And that's on average, so uh, you might be lucky and you might have a longer period of time, kind of like the Joplin tornado, or you might be unlucky and you might have only a minute or less if the storm kind of drops on you and they put the warning out at that time. And so that's a number that I really like to teach the public when we're doing tornado preparedness and outreach, uh, because it's really important that they have their supplies already ready and they already know where they're going to go because they do not have that time to sit here and kind of decide where to go and find their safe place. Uh, on top of that with messaging, uh, the really nice thing about tornado warnings is that uh, they're one of the products that are automatically plugged into the wireless em emergency alert system through iPods. And so when NWS puts out a tornado warning, it will ping everybody with a WIA automatically. Um, which is nice. So usually they will receive that very quickly, um, but we can't just rely on the WIA notifications. We've got to have other sources to get the tornado warnings. So I like to always talk about NOAA weather radios, which also will get you the information very fastly. And then also uh, social media and other kind of methods with that. As far and as actually, my messaging, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you could help out our listeners about iPods and WIA and what that is. Yeah, sure. Um, iPods and WIA, our wireless emergency alerts, um, comes to our, our, our iPod system, which is actually our national system supported by FEMA and also the FCC. Uh, this is a system that we're really trying to move alerting to uh, because it's all based on cell phone towers and it is a, uh, a multi-technology system that allows us to get information out based on where you are under each tower. And so um, people don't have to sign up for this alert system. It's available across the country. Um, luckily, states have access to it. 
federal uh, emergency managers have access to it. And then local emergency managers can have access to use it as well. And so it is a very good system to send alerts out because it's not like a lot of those other emergency management systems that we have to actually encourage people to sign up for, which has been a really big challenge with alert and warning. Thank you. And you were getting ready to say what you usually do for tornadoes. Yeah, so one of the methods that I'm very passionate about using is obviously social media. And so uh, as soon as I get any kind of weather alert, I will actually push it out very quickly within the first minute that I get it. Um, I make sure to include the tornado warning graphics that my local office make for the storm. And then I also timestamp it and I put all the information specific to my county because it is so important that we do messaging excuse me specific to my residents so they will actually listen to what i'm trying to communicate and so social media can get information uh, very quickly out to people however obviously if they're sleeping or something like that it's not always the top method but it is another method that we can do very fast-paced messaging with Awesome. Well, it's interesting too. Um, in addition to uh, you know those wireless emergency alerts and then um, the integrated public alert warning system you're bringing out the iPods, um, those on-demand critical pieces of information to send out. But then also you know the weather place challenges for us as emergency managers and meteorologists when we kind of look out further. You know that strategic, I guess you could say, strategic weather outlook when it comes to those slow-moving um, crisis or those slow-moving events. Like, uh, for example, here in Oregon, we're looking at a very, very uh, rough drought forecast. Uh, you know, we're looking at something. Uh, that we haven't seen in in a decade for our drought. We had a very wet winter, but so far a very dry spring. Uh, and then we talk a look at the um, areas around the country who are dealing with sea level rise. So how does uh, does uh, the National Oceanic uh, Administration and our Atmosphere Administration, NOAA, uh, alongside National Weather Service, do they use and forecast that kind of uh, data out there for emergency managers to to use? Yes, so they actually have a really great website and I'd have to look it up because I don't have it on the top of my brain right now, Uh, but you can actually take a look at their drought monitor. And so they will actually update that uh, every few days and there's categories of drought that you can kind of track with that. And so it's a really great tool for us to keep track of where we are sitting at with drought. And then back when I used to work in Texas, I used to actually communicate that information to the public with social media or during outreach presentations, because as we all know, drought usually leads to other things. So in Texas, it's brush fires, uh, wildfire season, um, other things like that. Uh, Also water conservation. So I think it's really important that we take a look at some of these uh, long-term, slower moving events uh, because there's still uh, variables to other disasters that we have and we still need to communicate that to the public through outreach and just speaking to them. So uh, definitely check out those uh, drought monitor maps and uh, communicate that to the public. Awesome. Well then, that is actually a great lead into our next segment because we're going to talk about a meteorologist and emergency managers and the way that these two groups work together when it comes to uh, preparing and responding uh, to disasters and crisis. So stay tuned. We're going to be right back.
All right, welcome back, State of Ready listeners. So our next segment that we're going to talk about is two groups who are very important when it comes to preparing the public and the community. We're going to talk about our meteorologists and our emergency managers and what those two groups, the strengths that they bring when it comes to safeguarding the public uh, for weather-related issues. Um, If you follow along on social media, whether it's on Facebook or whether it's on Twitter, um, especially during times of severe weather, you see messages going uh, constantly about alerts, storm damage reports, predictions of paths, uh, warnings that go out. And in turn, all of that is usually um, captured by emergency managers and uh, first responders and also pushed out that way. So I want to pose this question to our group here. So what strengths do each of these groups bring? Well, I think that uh, we're both obviously passionate about the same mission. If you talk to a lot of meteorologists and ask them the reason that they got into meteorology or forecasting or anything like that, usually it's because they have a love for weather, but they have a passion to keep people safe. And so a lot of them go to school to study meteorology and they learn all the science and then they get jobs where they are doing things like issuing warnings, hopes of saving lives and protecting property, which is what the mission of NWS is. And so uh, they're a great resource uh, for the science. Um, They're our SMEs, our subject matter experts. And so they are definitely the pros when we're thinking about uh, weather and the science behind it. As far as emergency managers, I think we bring the strength of our partnerships. Um, You know, we shake a lot of hands. Uh, We have a lot of uh, different networks throughout our communities. Uh, We know uh, how to communicate to different kind of networks. Uh, We know how to get the message out. Um, We also understand public safety. We understand uh, how to kind of be the ringleader during disasters and coordinate a lot of the different uh, responses that we have. And so I think that we're very easy to work together with the meteorologists to be able to get the information out to the public uh, in regards of weather safety, as well as uh, bring our community with us when we're doing that. I think Ashley, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think one of the most important things for us is that, you know, it's it's a common mission, common goal. The idea is we're saving lives and we're getting information out there to help prepare the public. And, you know, I think the strengths for meteorologists is they, they are your eyes and ears. They're providing situational awareness even before something ends up happening. And, you know, it's one of the things I practice all the time and is reaching out to get as much information as possible to figure out what's going on. And it's up to emergency managers to then sort of figure out what the playbook is for what's going to be facing them. And I, I think it's extremely important to realize that when you have great relationships and Ed's heard me say this before and stay ready listeners also know it's better to shake hands before a disaster than pointing fingers after. And the more you have a great relationship with everyone, especially your meteorologists who are your eyes and ears, the easier it's going to be to do your job. And, you know, Ed, what about your experience? So uh, where I support on a coastal community or a coastal county on the Oregon coast, um, every year, both during the spring and during the fall, uh, we would invite our uh our National Weather Service, the Portland office, to come over and give a presentation, uh, not just to our first responders and our fire and law enforcement and uh, emergency management, but also to other uh, stakeholders in the community. So we would invite, you know, our uh, local government authorities, our utility departments, our public works to get kind of a forecast 
of what that season's going to look like, whether it's a La Nina, an El Nino, or a neutral, uh, especially for winter storms that come across um, the Oregon coastline there. So that partnership, that collaboration, understanding what we would be expecting, if it's going to be a wet year, or, uh, and sometimes they don't pan out as they, as they as the forecasts go but it's that collaboration it's that connection and, and being able to ask questions and being able to receive reports that we see that partnership really strengthen um, and that collaboration begins you know with those types of relationships whether they are presentations whether they are uh, other methods of outreach that the National Weather Service um, conducts um, what would be what are some of the collaboration tools that the National Weather Service has Yes, so they actually have a ton of different ways that we could collaborate together. And I do want to make a point to say that uh, it's a really big goal of NWS as of the past few years to be more uh, public service related. They're actually working on training, they're learning ICS, uh, they're actually stepping into a role where they want to be supportive of uh, our offices of emergency management, our public safety, and so they can play a better role in providing the information while we apply the information to our decisions. And so I did want to make that point, but I also want to remind people that while NWS gives us data, there is a relationship in there that they need data back from us to do their job. A big example of that is during storms, when they're issuing warnings and they're doing products, they actually need to record damage and storm reports to actually confirm that their warning was warranted. Um, that's something that headquarters will actually go back through different uh, severe weather days and they will actually check to see, hey, you know, you had a warning out. Uh, did it actually come to fruition or did you issue a warning when you didn't need to? And so that's where emergency managers can actually help their local office by making sure that we're getting damage and storm reports from dispatch and we're actually getting back to the weather service office so they can record that and validate a lot of the hard work that they're doing in their office. And um, one of the big projects and collaborations that they have that we can help support with that mission is the Skywarn program. So they actually put on presentations every spring and summer, uh, teaching people how to uh, spot funnels, how to take a look at storms and actually call in uh, when a tornado is on the ground or uh, report hail correctly uh, so they can help with their mission of making sure that they're issuing warnings uh, correctly and getting the right information to the public. So Skywarn is a great one. Um, they also have some other programs with rain gauges where you can actually put a rain gauge in your backyard and uh, uh, give them rain gauge information uh, to help fill data holes and things like that. And then also, um, honestly, just amplifying and representing NWS to the community. Unfortunately, NWS is very swamped. Um, they have limited staff. They also have very limited funding, so they can't go out into the public and do a ton of outreach all the time. And so as an emergency manager, I kind of like to see myself as a liaison to them. I like to point everybody to the National Weather Service in my community to make sure they're getting the right data and things like that. And so uh, just having that partnership and trying to work together uh, is really, really important, I think, in emergency management. Ashley, I 100% agree with you. You know, in my time as the OES director where I'm at, um, I need to give a big shout out to National Weather Service Bay Area. Uh, follow them on Twitter at NWS Bay Area. 
Um, they were absolutely fantastic. Everyone who I ever dealt with there gave me models and forecasts well in advance so that we can get all of our first responders, all the members of our community alert to what it was that was going to be happening. And, you know, I think the more we can get people to sort of be really aware of what resources are available and where to get that information, but also how important and valuable the National Weather Service is into providing data to help you be prepared for critical incidents in your communities. Extremely, a hundred percent. I mean, they're always looking at data. They're twenty-four-seven. Um, they have a ton of really great tools. They have the top weather models, satellites. Um, I really could think of no other way that you could get uh, information for operations better than the National Weather Service. And what's so interesting is that even though we're talking about the National Weather Service and we think clouds, rain, and that. Um, just like in an earlier segment, we talked about drought, but uh, um, to our uh, local office here, the National Weather Service Portland office, um, they were instrumental in assisting us with smoke forecasts, with uh, red flag warnings during wildfire season, and even because we are a coastal community, or uh, we are a state with a, a coastline, um, issuing out warnings for uh, possible tsunamis, um, they are very pivotal in products that are outside of just the weather that we may think. Uh, they're very pivotal and critical in, in helping emergency managers with that kind of information. Um, so if we flip it now, and we are talking about emergency managers and uh, meteorologists working together, you know, what role does the public play? In, and you kind of highlighted that already there, Ashley, the role that public plays in, in helping the work of both groups. Uh, but can the public do, do anything more to help emergency managers or meteorologists do their job? Uh, what about... Um, I mean, we see it on, on social media, we see it on YouTube, Discovery Channel, like uh, Storm Chasers and what they do. Um, is that something that the public can help out with? So I think the biggest role the public can help us with in emergency management, but also in meteorology, is public reporting, which I kind of touched on with the Skywarn program. But it is absolutely so important that we establish relationships and connections with our communities and actually... Uh, collect that information from them because as you guys know when you're in an EOC you don't always have windows that you can look out of or um, you know you have a storm that goes over the west side of your jurisdiction you can't be on the ground level under that storm to know exactly what's going on and even at NWS uh, they have a lot of high tech they have a lot of great radars uh, but there still is a level of uncertainty and there's also uh, a little bit of blindness there uh, of knowing exactly what is happening under that storm. Um, usually when we issue warnings and things like that, we think we know what's going on or we're pretty certain, but we still need to have those reports to really verify. And so it is absolutely so important that we get uh, hail reports from the public. We get uh, tornado or wind damage reports from the public. And uh, as an emergency manager, I want that information and I want it real time because it will actually help me plan out uh, windshield surveys or maybe it will help me plan if I need to open up shelters if I start to see uh, large swaths of communities damaged to where they won't be able to stay in their homes anymore. Um, so I really think just having that that ability to get reports into us is really, really important. So Ashley, you touched on something that now is interesting to me. So a tornado goes through a community and someone in the local community, uh, drone responders comes out and flies a drone overhead and they're able to start giving you great situational awareness. Where would they send that information to you or how do they get that information to you? 
So I have been working on trying to establish ways to do social media reporting. And so one of those methods is actually building a virtual operations support team or a VOST. Uh, where we will actually have people take pictures of things and uh, hashtag it to send it to us with a location and a time and things like that. And so that's how we get reports from the public in regards to photos. Uh, I've also used my CERT teams and some of our other volunteers and I've had them do emails to me. Um, they'll go out and do an assessment and just take photos and, and send that to me. Uh, for drones, that's a little more complicated uh, because it would be video data, so it would be uh, um, you know, higher resolution. I'm not sure how I would get that via email or any other way, but it's really great to set that stuff up in advance. And if you work with your communities and establish how you're going to get reports from them now, um, you can actually roll that out and it's a lot easier. Which is a great segue into our next segment of what the future holds. And we know that drones are becoming uh, one part of that future technology that is being uh, more and more integrated into emergency response and uh, recovery. And so we're going to talk about those pieces of technology as well as what the future holds, um, both in uh, climate and response. So we're going to go on to our next segment here. What does the future hold in segment four? As we get into segment four, we're going to talk about what does the future hold? And again, we sort of started touching on this, but let's start off before we get a new technology. Let's talk about in the era of climate change. What do you think, Ashley and, and Ed, that we could be expecting to see more of in terms of disasters? Yeah, so we already have uh, some pretty solid evidence that with climate change, we're definitely going to see an increase in tropical weather. So our, uh, our tropical storms, our hurricanes, uh, unfortunately, uh, as the temperatures warm, the ocean is going to warm as well. And so we're going to have uh, storms that could stall, um, kind of like what we saw with Hurricane Harvey, how it moved in and kind of stalled a bit, moved slow and dumped a ton of rain. We could also have rapid intensification, and that's basically where the storm goes from a category one to a category four or five uh, very quickly. And that's primarily because uh, the ocean is where it gets its fuel from, and the ocean is so warm. So when you add more heat to the system, uh, that gives it more energy. And so we know for certain that we're going to end up seeing that with the tropical aspect. Uh, some other different kind of weather impacts we could see is more heat waves, especially in areas that might not be used to having certain levels of heat. Uh, also heavy rainfall. So as the atmosphere warms up, it actually allows the air to hold more moisture, which actually leads to storms that dump. And so uh, we're actually already seeing that in the Houston area occasionally, and also in areas out here in the mid-Atlantic where we're having a ton of urban inland flooding, like in the city of Baltimore and the DC region uh, from rain that is falling. You know, and we see it too when it comes to just the West Coast over the past five years or so, the amount of wildfires and the intensity and the frequency that we're seeing them. Uh, as of today, where we're recording here, May 9th, um, we uh, are having our first hurricane in the Eastern Pacific way earlier than normal hurricane season. In the Oregon, Portland area, we've already had a red flag warning. Uh, it's unheard of to have them in, in late April, early May. Um, and just looking at last year and, and the amount of wildfires that we are seeing and the, and the intensity and ferocity at how they grow and start to consume 
large swaths of land um, based upon years of drought and buildup and, and the fuel is there. We see it in California, we see it in Washington, everywhere along the, the western coast and around the world that the intensity of our wildfire season, which then propagates into other cascading events. So you have smoke, um, the forecast, you have people who have respiratory issues, you have visibility problems, and then you have the recovery portion aspect. Uh, are people going to want to see climate change? These disasters are becoming much more intense no matter where people live. You live on the coast, you get sea low. You live inland, you have the possibility of drought, wildfires, brush fires, all that. So it's really um, incumbent upon meteorologists and emergency managers then to be able to help prepare the public and, and help them to respond effectively. What Ashley gives me a question to is, how accurately do you think we can start forecasting what people's environments are going to look like 5, 10, 15 years from now? for where they currently live. I think that's a massive challenge. Um, I think that obviously our weather forecasting ability and the technology that we have is improving, uh, but it, it's a big challenge to be able to take a look at that and the environment in five to 10 years. We do have climate models, we have climate data, but um, believe it or not, actually some of our predictions of what the climate would be have actually been overpassed quicker than we expected them to. And so I think, unfortunately, with this challenge, uh, we're going to have to be really quick and on our feet about change. Uh, and we're going to have to kind of uh, probably change a lot of our decisions based on what's actually going on. So that leads the question of, you know, is there any new technology out there like artificial intelligence to help with this decision making and this gathering information to be able to make better decisions? I have heard of some, and believe it or not, uh, actually a lot of the meteorology community are looking at artificial intelligence to assist them in a lot of their forecasting, uh, a lot of the technology behind that. Uh, I'm actually not really super big in intelligence on the whole AI thing, uh, but it's very interesting concepts that I think can definitely help them with a lot of their forecasting stuff. Uh, in short, I will say I don't think that we will ever lose forecasters or meteorologists to AI. Um, I think that having the human in the chair actually looking at the data and actually helping to find the error and compose the forecasts that we do. Uh, is absolutely critical to the weather forecasting process. And Ed, what do you think? You know, artificial intelligence, uh, it's starting to play a much more uh, larger role when it comes to like preparedness. Uh, Andrew Owlet on last uh, episode was talking about the role of AI in, in resilience planning and supply chain and preparing businesses for disruptions. So I think AI is going to be that is going to be assisting us and take a lot of the workload off and as it becomes more and more prevalent in many areas of the country and around the world i mean just we just had shake alert um go live in washington so now that's the entire west coast that's live with shake alert um and the amount of uh, help and prediction and timing of when there's an earthquake and being able to send the alert out um, which automatically shuts off critical machinery and notifications to people. I mean, that's an example of artificial intelligence that goes out uh, that will greatly assist in the preparedness of 
individuals, businesses, and communities when a, an earthquake strikes. So I think we're seeing it in baby steps, and uh, I think we're going to see it a little bit more when it comes to uh, weather planning. Well, you know, I think this leads very well into what we talked about before about drones. And, you know, I, I thought about Ashley's uh, question about, you know, how to get massive amounts of information. Part of that is doing cloud storage and having sort of like a, a cloud Dropbox account or a Google Drive or something that people can dump information on. And, you know, I want to shout out to Grace3 Technologies. I know that they're already working on some great solutions to make sure that the information can go ahead and find the quickest and the easiest route to get out there. Um, but, you know, I think that this also goes back to Ashley's point about how important it is to have real human beings looking at the feed that's coming in and not just relying upon the artificial intelligence to make decision making. And I think, you know, Ashley, I'm sure you've had experiences where people have reported things or there's a forecast model, but then it doesn't actually hit the way it's supposed to be, right? Yeah, definitely. And we actually can see that with even some of the technology in our radar systems. Uh, if you're familiar with taking a look at radars, uh, sometimes some of them will actually pop up and show you like a little triangle where a tornado would be. Uh, we call it a TDS. Um, that little triangle that shows up is based on an algorithm and, and the machine is trying to guess that there's a tornado there. Uh, but in many situations, it's not. And so it's really good to have that meteorologist that understands the science and the storm to be able to say, yes, you know, that little triangle is correct and then put out a tornado warning rather than having technology kind of just guess and then automatically warn where it would have been incorrect. And we see that with some other radar uh, signatures too. You really need to have that person that uh, understands gear, understands the science and can actually manipulate and create that product that we need to make our decisions. And what about when it comes to weather warning and forecasting? Is there any new technology that's coming online? I know, Ed, you touched on ShakeAlert. Uh, Ashley, are you aware of like something that could be used? Well, I know in the meteorology world, um, they're actually working on updating several models. Um, as we continue to do more atmospheric research, uh, we learn more about how the atmosphere works. Um, we actually improve a lot of those physical equations that we plug into the model. And so uh, over the next year or two, we're actually going to see some of those math equations improved and plugged into the model. We're going to have less quantitative error, so it's going to give us more accuracy. We're also hoping to have that 72-hour window where we can give you a forecast and be more confident extend to maybe five days. So as we continue to get uh, better resolution models, we're going to be able to give uh, weather data out more in advance, which is really going to help emergency managers, especially when they need to make those decisions day out. For the, uh, the weather warning situation, um, really, I'm going to kick it back to the IPAWS. And I'm going to say that really, as we start to work on uh, notification systems, I'm hoping that we'll start to push more for the opt-in or the opt-in yes, opt systems rather than or actually let me back up, not the opt-in systems, uh, the automatic systems. The reason that uh, iPods is so successful is because we do not need people to sign up for it. And, and that's really the biggest challenge that we have with notification systems is just trying to, number one, educate people about it, number two, get them to take the action before the storm, and then number three, get the message to them. So I think NWS is actually working on trying to figure out how to get uh, more of that impact weather warning alerts out on the system so we can get it to more people. 
Okay. Is there any other facets or things that you see on the horizon when it comes to communications, whether it's public or whether it's private, um, that will assist uh, uh, for the future uh, for meteorologists and emergency managers? I really think social media. Um, I think that as it continues to grow and change, we can really use it to get information out to different groups of people that we just cannot reach otherwise. And so if you take a look at a lot of the NWS offices and a lot of the, even the private meteorology offices, um, they're trying to use social media more, especially for the past decade. And we're trying to do things like hold Facebook lives, um, you know, post weather information and just trying to communicate and make relationships uh, through that platform. So I'm very interested to see uh, in the future as social media changes, how we can continue to enhance that and also get that out to the public. Fascinating. And if you haven't taken a look at yet who your local National Weather Service office is, uh, we recommend everybody listening out there in the state of Ready Universe to uh, uh, just type that into Google. The more relationships that you make, if you're an emergency manager or somebody who's in public works or or deals with the weather and responds to it, to uh, make that uh, connection with your National Weather Service. Uh, for example, here in the Portland area, they host uh, webinars. Um, they host NWS chat if you have a question about an upcoming forecast. They're very, very quick to see if that there are any hazardous forecasts coming up, severe weather of uh, combining and, and gathering their community and their stakeholders to give a briefing. Uh, so definitely get in touch with them. Uh, if you're an emergency manager, if you, uh, whoever that is going to be and uh, make that connection and be involved there. I think that that's a really important thing that you just talked about is making those connections and, you know, preparing before an incident ends up happening and, and finding out what you can do to be prepared. And, you know, I, I think the National Weather Service has done an incredible job and do not get the amount of recognition that they need to go ahead and say, hey, thank you for all that you do. So I, I do want to say this, thank you for all you do. Um, Ashley, the same thing, I know how important your role is in emergency management and know that we would not be as prepared if it wasn't for you and your position. Well, thank you. Um, it's definitely a job that I like to tell people uh, I get paid for my hobby because I love it. Um, I'd spend 24 seven doing it because it's just very rewarding. And then on top of that, I'm just very passionate about weather and emergency management is a perfect place for me to be able to uh, use that passion. So uh, I'm very happy to be able to do it. Awesome. Well, we thank you for your time on uh, State of Ready, Ashley. Uh, as this episode has brought out, emergency managers and meteorologists, we they collaborate, they work together to prepare and then respond to, to uh, any hazards that happen climatologically or even naturally, uh, tsunamis, wildfires, droughts, smoke, etc. Plenty of National Weather Service products out there. Um, we appreciate all the work that you meteorologists are doing. And uh, with that being the case, um, we have a next episode coming up. Uh, episode six is going to be on our June episode. That's going to be an interesting uh, topic. If you're an emergency manager, you may have come across this uh, this thought, this thread. Uh, I know it's a hot topic in the emergency management circles. But uh, when it comes to emergency management, is it education or is it real world skills? 
We know that there's plenty of degree programs that are out there um, for emergency managers, everything from associates up to master's level. Um, but what does it take? Where does somebody get the experience? Is it in the books or is it the real world experience? So we're going to have a couple of guests on board on each side of that. So it's going to be a lively discussion. We hope you tune in for that. Uh, once again, you can find all of our State of Ready podcasts and episodes on the Anchor app, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Um, and when you do, if you come across, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That really helps out the channel, uh, helps bring up more content. Uh, and if you have any questions, you can reach me, uh, Ed, at uh, edward at readynorthwest.com. You can find me on Twitter at ready underscore northwest. Uh, if you want to be a, a guest on our show, feel free to reach out and give us an email. Bill, where can they reach you? Uh, reach me at on Twitter at 21clets, uh, 21clets. They can also visit me at www.21clets.com. They can reach out to me via email, bill at 21clets. And then also I want to encourage everybody who's a listener to follow us on Twitter also at State of Ready. Uh, we really want to make sure to get uh, get some communication, get some comments from you about this episode. And before I turn it over to Ashley, uh, Ashley, what do you think? Is it nature or nurture when it comes to emergency management education? Oh man, that's a tough question. I'd say a little bit of both, maybe. <laughs> Good safe answer. And Ashley, if we want to go ahead and find you, where can we reach you out to you? Yeah, if you want to find me, you can definitely find me on Twitter. I'm on it all the time. And my Twitter handle is going to be at MissAshes92. You can also find me on LinkedIn, but I'm not on there as much. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here, Ashley. We hope this information or this episode was informational for everyone. And we look forward to seeing you on next month at State of Ready. Everybody take care. <laughs>